Yeah, it's like, it's all jokey. You know, so it's weird when it's comics because it's all jokey, but like grabbing your hand and pulling your hand and sticking it down their pants or making you feel their chest hair or bending you over a desk and dry humping you or saying things like, we're not even sure you have a vagina. And I'm like, is that because I'm not sleeping with anybody here? Yeah. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Got a terrific guest today. Her name is Louise Palanker. I met her uh, through another podcast that I'm working on called Telephone Stories with a partner that I have, terrific guy, Brandon Ogborn. He's been on the show. We interviewed her because she used to teach stand-up at the Comedy Store in uh, uh, Los Angeles. And she met uh, an interesting kid named Gavin Arvizo. Ended up getting sick, had terrible cancer, and was the uh, plaintiff in the Michael Jackson pedophilia case of 2005. Louise was a, a witness for the prosecution in that case, and uh, we went and interviewed her for the other podcast, and I really, really um, had a great affinity for her, the way that she spoke and her spirit, and, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to have her on this show, and boy, I'm glad I did. She's done everything, literally. She co-founded a, a radio network, Premier Networks, which was sold to uh, iHeartRadio. She's directed documentaries, one of which was about the Cowsill family. It's called Family Band, the Cowsill story, which is on Amazon Prime. I, I didn't know about the Cowsills, but they're the family that the Partridge family was modeled after. She was a big fan of theirs in the 60s, and, you know, she just thought, I'm going to make a movie. So she did. She also uh, directed a film about Holocaust survivors called We Played Marbles, Remembering a Stolen Childhood. A little bit uh, less lighthearted, but a very important film nonetheless. Go and check it out. What else? Oh, yeah, she's been podcasting since uh, the term was coined, really. Been in the business a long time. Uh, her podcast, I love it. It's called Things I Found Online. And uh, she has co-hosts that come in and out. Larry Morgan, Joseph Briano, other radio legends come in and talk about the things that they found online. And it... Uh, uh, goes off in tangents. We talk about it on the podcast, and it, it kind of makes me feel a little bit insecure about the way I do things, which is really s last minute, and I come in without questions, and I do very little uh, preparation, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just a style thing. I'd like to say that. Uh, the truth is I have two kids and a job, and I just don't have time. That's it. But I love it. I love doing it. And uh, it helps me get over my, my insecurity of imperfection, or perfection, I guess. I don't know. It's therapy for me. Thanks for coming along on my therapy sessions. What else? Happy Monday, everybody. It's a little chilly here. Oh, man, I had to replace my thermostat yesterday. I don't know. Most of you know that I live in an old house. It was built in 1940. And it's got this cloth wiring. doesn't seem very safe. I don't know if it is. Um, but suddenly our thermostat went out. And, you know, it's dipping down into the upper 50s at night. So, I put on my DIY hat yesterday, went to Home Depot, and got a thermostat. It took me about seven hours. 
to get it right. It's a fascinating story. Anyway, I fixed it. Ha! And it's connected to my Wi-Fi, so I can sit here and talk to you guys and check the... I'm not going to do it. Totally irrelevant. Trump's still president. Uh, beyond belief. I can't believe it. But you know what? I've been saying to everybody, come Christmas, he's going to be indicted or impeached. And I'm going to stand by it. I'm running out of time. Please don't make a fool out of me. Mr. Trump, get yourself indicted or impeached. Thank you all for listening. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Hope you have a great week. If you like my podcast, please go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to it. It would mean the world to me. Here is Louise Palanker. I've tuned in to you on Facebook Live, and I haven't caught the whole thing ever. I just see 10, 15 minutes of what you're doing, and it seems to kind of meander just based on what comes up because you have a group of people talking. Is that kind of the format? Or do you think of an arc for the whole episode? How do you make good radio? That's my question, I guess. So what I well, our show is called Things I Found Online. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of based on the concept that radio legends are exploring the internet. So mm -hmm. we're people who grew up listening to radio, watching TV, and now this new form of media and expression is upon all of us and it impacts and informs everything we say and do all day, everything we think about. We don't even realize it's so integrated into our thoughts and mm -hmm. into our behaviors. You know, I could say to you, hey, Omar, uh, when you leave here, uh, if you need gas, there's a gas station. And, you know, in the 1950s, I would have gotten out a piece of paper and drawn you a map. Right. Right. When's the last time anyone has drawn anyone a map? In the 50s, you wouldn't have pumped your own gas either. <laughs> right. And they would have cleaned your windshield. <laughs> And maybe you would have earned like a little fire truck. Yeah, that's right. A set of steak knives or something. Yeah. yeah. But uh, now everything you do is so it, you, you, you think of in terms of like, oh, well, my GPS will get me there. Or, sure. uh, oh, I can just tap a button and order that on Amazon, whether it's a book I've told you about or a movie I've told you about or or anything. It's all online. Mm -hmm. Or if you even want to know uh whether or not you're supposed to discipline your child this way when he does that, mm -hmm. you'll go online and see what other parents have said about it. Right. Everything. I know. So uh, back to how do I format my show? Because uh, maybe I should keep a better train of thought uh, in your show and in mine. Uh, what I do is I, I do create a rundown. Yeah. And our, our show is kind of very links driven. So I've got the engineers over here in this corner with with a list of links that they're gonna pull up and either you know play or show, so we want the show to work as either an audio or a video and audio podcast. So mm -hmm. we don't want anything to be so visually driven that if you're listening, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Kind of like, um, you know, I listen to Rachel Maddow in in the car a lot, and then if I come home and it's they're replaying it and it's on TV, I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> 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 like it, it hadn't even occurred to me to have a visual attach right, right. to what she had been saying. But right. of course, she's showing things the whole the whole right. Life. But uh, yeah, so we talk about things we found online and the theme could be sort of uh, revolving around the guest. Like last uh, Tuesday, we had the, the screenwriter uh, of Straight Outta Compton, who's a very good friend of mine. So we, we, we first the first thing we do is we Google him mm -hmm. and then we can make fun of that. And then we um, we talked about like the straight out of memes that, that they did sure. surrounding the release of that film. And we showed some of them. And, you know, you can just say them out loud. Like one of them was uh, Bill Cosby's face, and it says straight out of Quaaludes. Right. 
so that was good. Yeah. And and then we we showed a video that he did when he was 15 years old, and he entered a contest to see if he could write a commercial for Drake Cupcakes, which they have on the East Coast. And he won, and they brought him to New York, and he filmed a commercial, and so that's on YouTube, and we showed that. So there's just a lot of fun stuff you can do with yeah. people. And then we, uh, in the second part of the show, we just kind of go around the room and talk about things we each found online that that week that were interesting or ridiculous I think it's a great or, format. or silly. So there is kind of a format to it. Yeah. Like, I don't think you can just open up the mics and say, hey, we're interesting. What and, should we talk about? And start talking. I think you have to really prepare. And then if it goes off on a tangent and you don't get to all the things on your rundown, you know, that's fine. And I'm sure when you're interviewing someone, you've got your questions lined up, but you do want it to sound like a conversation. I don't. I never have. You don't have questions lined up? No. Nope. You just start talking. Yeah. Like right now. Yeah. There's no questions. Like, what are you going to say to me next? I have I no idea. Know. How? Do, where did you get all your engineers? I mean, you've got a whole table of stuff set up here. How does that? How did you get that together? I'm a one-man show. Like, I, this is this is how I do it. Right. So it's been evolving. Because you've been a podcaster since day one. Since right. podcasts be, became podcasts, right? Pretty much day one. The first time I heard the word podcast, I said, "What's that?" It was my it was my part my premier radio partner. I'm one of the founders of Premier Radio Networks, mm -hmm. now a division of iHeartMedia. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Craig Kitchen, uh, I left Premier. We we sold it to Clear Channel, and, and a lot of us left, but Craig was still there. And I went up to visit him one day, and I said, because I had always been kind of behind the scenes, and I said, mm -hmm. so what will it take for me to get my own show? I'm ready to have, because I've been doing stand-up, like, I'm ready to host my own show. Yeah. And he said, I have one word for you, podcast, which was, of course, you know, a brush off and I I heard it as such. Right. I I heard him say something to me that meant never. <laughs> uh, you know, at premiere. <laughs> yeah. And I went home and I and I probably looked up podcasts. On your and, compact computer. Yeah. Yeah. And it was uh -huh. like, oh, it's a radio show you can listen to on your phone. Whenever. I, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, huh. And then I, I went to do stand-up that night, and my friend uh, Laura Swisher was, was doing stand-up, and I said, have you heard of podcasts? Because she's always really techie, too. And she's she's a really funny, good friend of mine. And she now works at a podcasting company, ironically. Here we are 15 years later. Wow. And she goes, yeah. She goes, I was talking to somebody about it, and you know, we should do that. And so I have this room in my house that that was a studio before I moved in here. There was a guy who lived here that that scored TV shows. Oh. And so the whole room is soundproofed and baffled. Yeah. And and, uh, and, I, and I have my drums and guitars in here and everything. And uh, I, I thought, let's see if we could turn this into a studio. And that's what we did. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the re remote equipment is great because you can go to where people sure. are. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I used to do a lot of that at Premiere. When I was working at Premier Radio, I would go and interview all the celebrities with my little bag, my my dat machine. Now, is that how you started, or was it in comedy? How did your professional career start? What 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 came first? I was a page. Well, I was an intern. Where you, first of all, did you grow up here in Los Angeles? No, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. I knew, I knew nobody in show business. No one. What What about your parents? What did they do? Not show business. My dad made fur coats. He was a furrier. Okay. Yep. And my mom was. A mom, yeah, a professional mom. I mean, she raised four kids. And yeah. were you the always the funny one? Yeah, I I think it goes like my sister Amy is like the one who holds. She's the glue. She holds everyone together. And then I'm funny, and Joanne's funny, and Craig's funny. Amy's funny too, but I think she's more organized than uh -huh. funny. Uh huh. You know. Uh huh. 
Yeah. I mean, we're all funny. If you had dinner with us, you'd you'd be howling. I mean, we are we're funny. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I came from the same your family. Your family too. Yeah. I'm an only child, so I I mean, I remember the very first. The very first, I, I, yeah, I think I was a funny kid because I was maybe six years old. We were at this restaurant opening in Redlands, California, and um, being an only child, I was always gregarious. And I would, at that time, I was walking around the restaurant just introducing myself to people at their tables. Wow. And I was wearing, I remember I was wearing this, I guess it must have been 1975, 1976, where safari jackets were really hip. Oh, yeah. Right, so I had my own little six-year-old safari jacket on. Uh-huh. And I, I told some joke, I forget. Maybe it's like you've got a banana in your ear or one of those old chestnuts. And I got that. I got the, I got the table laughing. And I, I took my jacket and I went like this. And I said, safari so good. Ah. Just like that. Wow. So I knew I was going to be in entertainment somehow. I think your parents should have just left you there. <laughs> and then I, I was so excited by my success, I got sick in the car on the way home. Oh. <laughs> but you, me- you remember that moment. Sure. Wow. Yeah. I mean, w- wanting... I guess I don't know what it was. You know, my, my we were living in Redlands because my parents had just divorced, and I, I was with my grandparents who loved me, and and then I got all this admiration from from yeah. strangers. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. It sounds kind of pathetic, but maybe no, that was I'm, it. I'm sure you were adorable. That's what happened. Yeah. And then I I, I always had hats and costumes and things growing oh, up. Oh, okay, that kid. Come yeah. out and with a guitar with you know play songs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How I mean, how did you get into comedy? Is that, I mean, so you started as a page at a... Yeah, so I moved out to L.A. I didn't know anybody. I, my friend... My wait, 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 wait. What did you study in school? Teaching. I got my teaching degree. I see. Yeah. And then why did you come out to L.A.? I did. I was doing everything tame and expected because yeah. you didn't want to say, oh, I'm going to go into show business when you weren't particularly... I didn't get the starring... You're, you're not in that... I didn't get the starring role. Sure. I was the mayor's wife in Bye Bye Birdie. Okay. You know, there's a scene that I kill... <laughs> but um, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have, I mean, in my mind, I had a beautiful singing voice. Yeah. You know, and I'm like a, I'm like a big melody harmony geek. Sure. Like I, I, I have a, a uncanny harmony ear. Yes. It's like ridiculous because I'm a drummer and I'm into harmonies, but then the rest of my musical uh, expertise is like, like the sound of my voice. Eh. Well, nobody likes the sound Very of their own pitchy, voice. Pitchy, you know, and I hear pitch, so it's like, I I hear it. Oh, that's interesting. When I record myself, and I'm like, stop. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I wish, yeah. you know, that I had a beautiful singing voice because I know what I want to. I know sure. the note I want to hit, but you know, your body won't do it. Yeah, pitchy. Okay. All right. And uh, so I love music. I wanted to be a singer. Yeah. And that there was no one saying, "Oh, you, yeah, you, you have a beautiful sing." No, nobody said that. Especially with four kids, it was like stop drumming, stop singing. Yeah, just pieces of just want some quiet around here. Yeah, like yeah. we don't think you're talented. Yeah, yeah. So the best thing to do was to go into teaching because everybody would say, "Oh, that sounds reasonable. Like that's really wise." I, yay. Sure. Because I wanted to play the drums, and and they said, "No drums are loud. You can't have drums. They're not for girls." I was a tomboy. I wanted to join little league. No girls don't do that. I wanted to have a paper paper route. Girls don't do that. Yeah. So finally, like by 15, I had sort of stumbled into golf. And I don't really like golf. I was doing it to to do a thing that people said yay to. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. It was, and, and now as an adult, like I don't play golf. I don't, I don't have time for that. Sure. And I also feel like 
what's the point? Like, you know, eight hours later, you've just played golf. But if I write a song, eight hours later, I've, you've, I've, you've got I've written a song. Yeah, that's right. No, I agree. Yeah. I, I feel the same way about golf. I've got a set of golf clubs. And yeah. And, so, like... and yay to the people that get uh, real enjoyment. I, I'm sure it's like the hashtags. It's like, oh, if I can do better at golf, I'm going to feel great. It's like I spend... I play video games. There's no point to that. So right. I'm not saying for people who play golf that that's a waste of time. It's a waste of time for me to play uh, a video game while I listen to Rachel Maddow. But I've, but I've also listened to Rachel. If you play do, golf do you while really... listening to Rachel Maddow, then that's time. <laughs> <laughs> do you really play video games? Yeah, I what, do. What do you play? Mindless video games like Match 3 and, um, you know, like things like Bejeweled and... Uh, Candy Crush and those things. Yeah, ridic yeah. ridiculously mindless video games. So yeah. tell me about what – was there a moment that you said to yourself, I need to move to L.A.? Yeah, my whole life. Really? Yeah. So we visited here when I was 12. I have, I had an uncle who lived here. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dream was that I was going to – we were going to travel to L.A. and I was going to find the cow sills because that was my teen idol, my teen idols. And uh, so we, we walked all over Santa Monica – didn't find them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not surprisingly. Even, yeah, I, I'm not sure where they were, but sure. hiding from us, I guess. And uh, yeah, I I would say to my uncle, like, where are like I I I would always ask him, like he was my GPS, like where are we? Because I wanted to get sort of a geographic sense of things, because I knew at 12 that I was going to grow up and move to California. Wow. And then we went to a taping of the Bob Hope. Uh, maybe it was a crisp. I don't know, but he One had of a variety special, shows. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. And I saw the kid. I saw the kids like dressed in uniforms that were seating people, and they were they were called pages. Yeah. And one of the pages said to me and my dad, "Do you want to sit closer? There's two seat. There's two seats closer." So he moved us closer, and I think the the, I remember that Louis Nye was on. I don't remember who else was on. For some reason, I remember Louis Nye, but it was all it was all celebrities at that time. Sure. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to become a page. I'm going to do what these kids are doing seat people and I'm going to find my way into show business and then we're driving around LA and I see something that's, that's just how stupid I was I see something that says a building that says the page school which was a private school for children and I thought oh you have to go to college to become a page right. my parents will never go for that let me go yeah. to the page school <laughs> like, how am I going to figure out how to crack this nut you yeah know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I, I grew up. I got my teaching degree, and then I do have a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles out here. So I moved out here. I slept on floors, and uh, I started applying for jobs as a page. Sure. And that took. Well, about, why not a teacher? Because I wanted to get into show business. You had no interest in being a teacher. I I was I was getting my master's at Cal State L A. Yeah. But I knew that I wasn't going to follow through on that. That was the reason I came to L A. Wink. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mom, Dad, I'm going to get my master's in L.A. Right. And that whole time, my cousins Stephen and Trish were going inside the UCLA job board because they were students at UCLA. And they were listing all the internships, uh, making notes for me. I wasn't allowed to go in there. I didn't have a card. Right. I wasn't a student. Right. They would come out and tell me the internships. And then I would call and I would tell them I was a student and I would go in. And I, got, I interned on That's Incredible. Do you remember that's incredible? Sure, with yeah. uh, with uh, the mayor of Catalina. What was his name? Davidson. So it was John Davidson. John, John Davidson. Fran Tarkington and, right. and a blonde lady. 
yeah, what was her name? Uh, Kathy. Kathy Lee somebody? Yeah, no, Ka- Kathy yeah. Crosby. Uh... Kathy Lee Crosby? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Like guys would catch bullets with their teeth and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. We, we went through all the mail. We had to go through all the mail. They uh, never let us out of that mail room. It was a horrible internship. Okay. They didn't teach us anything about production. They simply used us like trained monkeys going through the mail. Slave labor. Yeah. And I had another internship on a show called Our Magazine with, with Gary... Collins? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice hair. Very handsome. Very handsome. Yeah, yeah. sure. They were much Great nicer. voice, too. Yeah. Yeah, they were very nice to me there. I loved the people there. And and then I finally got a job as a page at Metro Tape, which was Metro Media, which became the Fox Channel 11 lot. It's on Sunset and I want to say Van Ness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had like an erector set on the ceiling. Yeah. Or on the top of the roof. I don't know what that meant. Yeah. Um. And while I was a page there, I got an internship on the John Davidson talk show. Now, he had taken over from Mike Douglas. So they had all of the research that Mike Douglas had accumulated over the years. So mm-hmm. they had this big room with all these files. This is way pre-internet. So if there was a guest on the show, you'd go in there and you'd look up the person's file. And you'd pull the person's file and give it to the segment producers. But then you also had to go through all the magazines and newspapers and cut out anything about anyone and go back into the and file room. And add it room. to the file. Yeah. Right? Lots of paper cuts. Wow. Yeah. So it was like a it was a library for celebrities. Yeah. And my, my boss there, her name was Susan Klein, and she was the best. Like, she believed in me, and she was going to hire me the second she could. So I was a page. And then when I wasn't a page, I was an intern. But it was like I worked on the Davidson show. I felt like I worked. How are you supporting yourself? Page money. That was it. Yeah. And uh, I think my dad had given me two years to make it. I was paying $250 a month in rent. I was living pretty close to the bone. Sure. And I had two years of not panicking about money. And not everybody has that backup system. Like parents that. That had some money. Yeah. Yeah. They had some money. And they would have said at some point, you got to go get a real job. But it didn't take me two years. It wasn't because they couldn't afford it or you were going to be destitute. That was just the family yeah, pressure. They, yeah. yeah, they wanted me to make yeah. you know be supporting myself. I mean, I'm sure they had conversations about she's in California and she's not coming home and how long do we let her do this? And but within two years, I had I was offered a job at a show called PM Magazine. Sure. And they had them all over the country. And it was like a Group W show. I don't know if Group W is still a thing. Mm-mm. But they would share stories. And if you did a good enough short story, it would go national. But we were not a Group W station, so a lot of our stories did not go national. There were more stories that went national from the Group W stations, like in Boston mm-hmm. and stuff. But it, be, within six months, I was writing what we called the wraparounds. And that's where the host and hostess go out to a location. So I would book the location mm-hmm. and... The crew would go out and film them saying, hi, we're standing in front of uh, Nate Nels and speaking of rye bread, you know. it. Yeah. And so I vowed to never type the words and speaking of. <laughs> like that, that was cliche and that I, you know, I could rise above that. Right, right. Yeah. So pretty soon I'm producing stories. And so that's how I learned how to make films because you're making a little movie. You're right. making like a seven minute movie. Right. And how to write. Yeah. And how to write. And what are we going to see and what are we going to hear and how does it all come together? Now, like I told you when I arrived, I, I was listening to your stand-up on the way here. Oh. And uh, it's a big leap from working in a, in a library and writing segments to becoming a stand-up. Yeah. I mean, that's so exposed and so, for me, it sounds so terrifying. Well, what happened was the arc that brought me to stand-up was that, I mean, I think I, I knew I was funny, but I thought, 
oh i'm not the funniest of like so i'm not joan rivers i mean i i'll write i can write i know how to write and then rick dees came on pm magazine mm-hmm. and he met me and asked me and i and i wrote funny stuff for him because someone told me he was funny i had never listened to rick dees on the rick radio Dees in the morning right yeah i was still an am girl yeah you know what was that kiss fm it was, he was kiss, on? kiss fm right and I don't even think I had an FM radio in my Honda Civic hatchback, yeah. you know, because it was like uh, roll-up windows. Right, and, right. Yeah. And uh, someone said, oh, yeah, he's funny. And I had a friend that worked um, on the floor above me named Alex Escarano, and he he taught me that I was funny. He he worked – he was like one year ahead of me, like in terms of – he His worked career in, the, and, in the promotion uh-huh. department. Like he would write the stuff that an announcer said in between shows. Sure. And uh, he took a class from Danny Simon, Neil mm-hmm. Simon's brother. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw Alex's script, and I was like, "Oh, I can write sitcoms." So I started. I started writing a, a sitcom for uh, One Day at a Time, and I had become friends with the kid on One Day at a Time. His name. Uh, he played. He actually played a kid named Alex on the show. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and uh, he uh, he was. I mean, like I'm like what 22, and like he's 15, so. It wasn't, you know, we weren't that, you know, it's Glenn Scarpelli and uh, he was a, just a fantastic kid and we became buddies. And yeah. I, I kind of featured his character in my, in my show and and he said, oh, I'm going to put it on the desks of the producers. And, you know, so I got kind of, I got almost got kind of door, cracking yeah. sitcom land. Yeah. And I got to meet Norman Lear oh and I God. gave him a script and I got to pitch to Norman Lear and a table full of people that had all written for Maud and I was, you know, very intimidated. So it was like almost sitcom ready and then Rick Dees offered me this job on the weekly top 40 and I went from television to radio really yeah do you regret that I think there were moments when I did like if I I, I knew that if I had stayed in television I'd, I'd probably be like a showrunner or something now but I don't because it, it led to me be, be, being able to found premier radio networks with my partners and how did that happen I mean what, what how do you how do you start a company like that so we I, I was writing for Rick Dees yeah and uh, my, my, the men who became my partners, they were disc jockeys at Kiss FM. Mm-hmm. So it was Tim Kelly, Steve Lehman, and um, Ed Mann. Mm-hmm. And then we brought in another partner, Craig Kitchen, who was not a disc jockey, but he worked for Cats, and he knew the advertising end of mm-hmm. things. And so we just kind of like pooled our resources, and I was always the one writing. And it was Tim's idea that we could do a show where I would write the script interview all of the artists Mm -hmm. and put together a package that we would send to radio stations so that it would sound like they were doing their own top 40 countdown but with interviews with sorry that's all right a little marimba never hurts somebody um that i was interviewing uh all of the artists and then cutting it into like 20 or 30 second sound bites Mm -hmm. you would time the intro of the song you would time the the sound bite and then you would Give all you mean dis- to fit the formats of the radio that the radio stations yeah, were so using. That, so, for example, like the disc jockey who's jockeying the show, like it probably required some practice. But if he knew that, like this Huey Lewis song has like a 15 second intro, mm-hmm. and this Huey Lewis soundbite is 20. I mean, did I say minutes? I meant seconds. Seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A 50 second intro, and this Huey Lewis soundbite is 22 seconds. Then he would start talking. And with whatever I wrote, hey, we talked to Huey Lewis, and uh, you know, uh, the news is that uh, he loves golf. 
is another, <laughs> another, go- another golf reference. Yay. Like, <laughs> he loves golf, and when, every chance he gets on tour, he's he's heading for the nearest golf course, and then he hits Huey Lewis talking, and then doing the math, like oh eight, my eight seconds into that, he hits the record, and then Huey hits his own post. Does that make, this is radio talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds tight. That's unbelievable. And cool. Like every yeah. radio guy is like the god of his market. Yeah. Because he's doing the show every Friday afternoon, the countdown. Right. The top 40. And we would also give them like extra songs. So in case they didn't have the exact same top 40 in that market, they could they could tear the sheet in the middle and rearrange the pages to, to suit their own top 40. And that we called that the plain rap countdown. And that's how we launched Premier Radio Networks. And then you ended up selling it. Yeah, year year, but I think maybe fifteen years later. Wow! So the next thing we started doing was comedy packages for morning shows. So we would have all of these comedians, and then we would brainstorm all of these ideas, and we would create parody songs, parody commercials, funny characters, funny phone calls with scripts for the DJs, so that they get a call from a certain funny regular, and then the DJ knows his lines and he rolls the tape and he's now talking. I mean, this is really behind the curtain in, in the Wizard of Oz kind of stuff. Yeah. That's I mean, what, I I would never radio, even think that that's how it was put together. But think about local radio. You don't have a budget. You don't have a staff. You wake up at four in the morning and you have to do four hours of live radio. So if you can get help, if you can get people writing you topical jokes that are faxed, we would fax topical, topical jokes the night before because that's... That was the only way we could get to people like right away was via fax. Right. But right. The, the rest of the stuff came on a reel-to-reel tape. Are we talking about the 90s? Yeah, I mean, we're this... talking about the 80s and yeah. 90s. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I left in 2000. And how did you jump from writing material for other people to performing your own material? And, so, why, and why did you do that? Well, I, w- I was doing a lot of performing at Premiere, but I would it would be in the studio doing different right. voices and characters and, and things like that. And I, one of the things that we did was we would go to the Laugh Factory, record comedians, go up to them and say, hey, uh, can we use a minute of your stand-up on a show called the Laugh Factory Minute? And Jamie, the owner of this club, will pay you $50 or whatever yeah. whatever the arrangement was. And if they signed the release, then we, we could use a minute of their stand-up. And that went out to radio stations. And so I was hanging out at the Laugh Factory and... I really always loved the world of comedy. And mm-hmm. as soon as there was no smoking, re- remember when that law passed? Yeah, did right. that Did that change your life? It changed my life. Absolutely. I used to sit there on the steps with my head out the window. Right. You remember restaurants? Yeah. They had the smoking section and the non-smoking section? So as The whole as, restaurant's a smoking section. Yeah. So as soon as there was no smoking at the Laugh Factory, that's just where I went every night. Yeah. That's where I made my friends and- hung out and then pretty soon the owner of the laugh factory was just saying like every year he'd give out like these jackets and he's like if you want <laughs> his accent <laughs> i haven't talked to him in a long time but his accent is everybody does an impression of how he talks but if you want a jacket you got to get on the stage you got you can't be you can't be a pussy you can't be lazy you got to get up there, be funny you know you're funny is he israeli and, yeah oh there you go yeah that's a good accent and so so finally i did i did it i got it like it was jamie that really talked me into it yeah jamie masada so yeah and was and, it terrifying? Yeah. The first time I was up on stage, everyone from Premiere came. Yeah. And th- things you need to know, and this is like um, beginner tips, the ki- the male comedian who was up before you has shoved the mic very firmly into the stand. 
And so don't put your mouth too close to it yeah. when, you're take, when you're trying to take it out. Chip a tooth. So I bashed myself in the mouth. Sure. And I, I could taste the blood. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. And so... You punched yourself with a microphone. I did punch myself in the face with the microphone. Wow. And I made some sort of joke about comedy isn't funny. I, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't have anything. You know, I had no crowd work. And then I just kind of like... Do you taste iron when you're nervous? Because I'm really nervous. <laughs> And then I just kind of recited my act and and got off stage. Yeah. And then and then uh, Jamie would say things to me like, you know, you you your your character is your boss, so you you got to go on stage carrying briefcase, wearing suit, and like it's a Gallagher show. What are you talking like, about? Yeah. If I had <laughs> if I had to dress up to do this, yeah, I I won't ever do it. I just told him. You're yeah, you're a writer at heart. I'm not comfortable wearing a bit like a like a lady's business suit. Right. I don't wear that. That's not who I am. I don't own a briefcase. Was that your stick? This t did you carry the tomboy stick up with you? Is that yeah. why you were saying that? No, he wanted me to do I was doing jokes about being the boss. I see. My first jokes were sort of about how I was an awkward boss. Uh-huh. And that uh and that I oh there was a story about trying to fire trying to fire someone. And because I was the fun boss, he every time I would say, you know, Derek, we're going to have to let you go. He would say, you're kidding, right? And then that was it. And that that went on for like three minutes. <laughs> it really that that really that really was a true story. Really? Yeah, I couldn't fire the guy. He kept telling me that I was kidding, and then I that made it increasingly awkward. Sure. And then finally, I in the joke, I say to him, Der okay, Derek, listen, tomorrow morning when you get up and get in your car. Don't come here. Yeah, right. Drive <laughs> yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, so I don't remember the rest of the joke. But yeah, I was doing jokes about being a very awkward boss. And, you know, because you're supposed to be at least a little bit bossy. And, yeah. you know, and I wasn't remotely bossy. So since I was doing jokes about being a boss, Jamie thought I should dress up like sure. like a boss. And that would be the fastest track to sitcom land. To, to, to Carson. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, did you, you know, with all this stuff coming up, I just read, this morning, the letter that Louis C.K. printed about, you know, masturbating in front of women. Did you, were you subject to any of that stuff nothing in that your career? Graphic, nothing that graphic happened to me, but. I mean, was the, that as common as we're being led to believe? Yeah, especially at the comedy store. Wow. I mean, the Laugh Factory and the improv, I didn't ever experience any kind of uncomfortable moment. I mean, both of those clubs were really run like. And yeah, like exactly what you would hope or expect if you mm -hmm. went there for dinner. You know, the, I was friends with everybody, but you stepped on the on the tarmac of the comedy store, and you immediately felt like like an like an enemy soldier. I don't, I, I don't know. It, really? It, yeah, because it was like at least when I was there, um, the club is owned by a woman, so you'd think it would be really friendly and sure. And, is that Polly Shores? Belly Shore's mom, mom. Mits Mitzi, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sip of water, water before <clears throat> we get into this. So, yeah. So uh, the comedy store, uh, she tended to. I'm going to use past tense because I do not know what goes on there now. Yeah. And I did when I did my Me Too story about the comedy store. It was because I was challenged by another female comedian. I really was just going to not publicly say any of this stuff because nothing happened to me mm -hmm. like like what the women are describing with right. ck like nothing that graphic ever happened to me really i i was fine it was it was it was the i can handle it like women do a lot of i can handle it in our own minds right even though it's not okay right but 
that kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's part of the social paradigm, the social yeah. norm. If someone had ever been naked in front of me against my will, I, I definitely would have told a Me, me Too story sooner. But How would you have reacted then, do you think? I think I would have gone to management. Hmm. You know, d despite my level, I, w I think I did go to management about the level that was happening to me at the comedy store, which I'll tell you about, because it just wasn't, it wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted them to know this, this is not a comfortable place for women to be. To is be that because of the way you were raised? Is it, was it your, your folks that instilled that in you? I already had a career. Mm -hmm. I already had money. I right. already had my life. You didn't have I much to lose. I was not in the yeah. same position as a young female comedian who needs to make rent. So that's the huge difference. I'm not in any way casting any aspersions against somebody who did not talk. No way. I was I was the owner of a company. I didn't I could walk away at any moment. This was something I was challenging myself. You mm -hmm. know, like can I start again at the bottom? in a career and work my way up. Mm -hmm. I, I want that challenge. It wasn't, it wasn't out of necessity. No, yeah. absolutely. So so that's probably why I said something, but it's still a- Can it, you tell me what you complained about? Yeah, so uh, the comedy store is run by these young comedians that Mitzi has hired, most of whom are not yet what's called a paid regular. Mm -hmm. So a paid regular is somebody that is going to get regular spots and Mitzi has personally passed you and your picture is in the lobby and you get paid when you perform. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for comedians? The greatest. It is. It's okay. the holy grail. It's not, like, it's not like you're behind the scenes saying, oh, he's a lifer here at the comedy store. He's never no, going no, no. anywhere. It's That's the opposite. Everyone's fighting for paid regular. Okay. So they have uh, different tiers. They have this whole open mic system mm -hmm. where you go on Sundays and Mondays and you wait around and you sign up and you just wait around all day on, on Sunset Strip. And then finally, uh, someone comes out with a with a basket and you pick lotteries to see. So you've already waited for like four hours to see if you even have- the a chance. One of 20 slots to do three minutes. So. I recommend for open micers, don't go to the comedy store or the Laugh Factory and wait around on a sidewalk. Go go to a coffee house and just, just go up every night, get up every night, and then two years into that, then go to the comedy store. You know, wait until, if you're going to get two minutes on the, on the comedy store stage, you got to be- You got to kill it. Yeah, that's not where you practice. Because you've just spent your day on a sidewalk doing nothing, except maybe writing jokes. And, Fascinating. And if you're a woman, being made to feel like- Like that's okay. Like if you're yeah. not- Basically, the way they make you feel is that if you're not sleeping with me, you're just taking my stage time. That's the generalized feeling I think that women experienced in the time period that I was there. Like, you are in the way unless you're sleeping with me. Who are the big comics then? None of the big comics acted that way. It's the other open micers. No, in fact, the bigger comics that saw the way I was being treated would pull me aside and give me pep talks. None of the people who had made it acted that way. That's, and, and who were the women who had made it at that time? Um, like Joan Rivers and... Oh, yeah. I mean, this was... We're past that now. Yeah, way past that. Yeah. So, you know, it was people like Natasha Leggero and uh, Sean Polofsky. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't interact with a lot of the regulars because I was in that pool of people, that talent. Uh, I can't remember all the names. It was like 15 years ago, mm -hmm. but... 
Mm-hmm. Did the women support each other or were they backstabbing? Yeah, no, 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 no. The women were very supportive. Of I each- see. Yeah, no, the women were all very supportive of one another. Uh, so sorry, tell tell me about this 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 incident that happened that took you. So to I get a number and yeah. um, and I I was like number nineteen. I was like one of the last open micers, and then Mitzi, I guess somehow you can, if you if you're open micing for a few years, you can get a showcase. And that's where Mitzi is really going to watch you and pass you or not pass you. And the showcases come on right after the open micers. And I pull number 19 and don't realize it, but Mitzi's already seated when I go on stage. Mm-hmm. I do my three minutes. How'd it go? I I guess it went, you know, it was probably pretty much what you saw online, like, okay. you know, my material. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love the thing about the Tempur-Pedic breasts, by the way. Yeah, I probably You got one did. guy jumping on one breast and the other one can't feel it. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Yeah, so I probably did some of those jokes. And then like a few days later, I get a call from a comedian. And I love him, so I'm not going to say his name. But he wasn't yet a paid regular. However, he did work at the comedy store in exchange for stage time. Okay. So that's the dynamic is that all of these men, boys, are working at the comedy store in exchange for, for free. In exchange for stage time. Mm-hmm. They're not paid regulars they're simply working for stage time and is that even legal i mean i don't know and, and, <laughs> I, mean, and I think wow. they also go up to her house and take care of her sure oh man okay so i don't know what all, what all goes on right. but they're How you know they know her and and you know and she's bonded with them and she loves young comedians okay. and that's like legitimately like she's yeah, a, yeah i mean she always has yeah a champion of comedy. but i think you know i just think she's she's a woman so you think that some of the people going up there would be young young female comics i don't think they uh, were you know i i don't know yeah i think it was like she really enjoyed the attention of these young men so uh so she was seated she saw me and a few days later i get a call from a friend of mine who says yeah i'm not sure if you heard this or not but uh it looks like you're a paid regular so like a few days had gone by and nobody had called me not mitzi not someone who works for Mitzi with a salary, whose job it was to call the people that had been passed. Right. But some kid who's working in exchange for stage time that he's not getting, that I've just been made, some female has been made paid regular. And I said, huh? Like, you know, because I wasn't even showcasing. Like, yeah, I guess she saw you and, you know. Big jump. Yeah. So I guess you have to come in and sign some paperwork or whatever. And when I finally, when I, I got in my car and went to the comedy store and, and, Somebody said, oh, we we thought you didn't we didn't know why you weren't here already. Like so. So you could tell already that something's up. Information was being withheld from me. Yeah. And then when you're paid, once you're paid regular, you get these special spots. But in order to get them, you have to show up at the comedy store Sunday morning and Monday morning at like 10 o'clock and wait until like two o'clock when a guy named Tommy comes in and then you can sign a list and then you come back that night. So it was this big, huge time commitment. As a paid regular? As a paid regular. Oh, my God. And while you're sitting there with these other paid regulars, they're harassing you. You're the only girl there, and they're just harassing you. It's it's bad. It's like... Like propositioning you and... Yeah, it's like... It's all jokey. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's weird when it's comics because it's all jokey, but like grabbing your hand and s- pulling your hand and sticking it down their pants or making you feel their chest hair or bending you over a desk and dry humping you or saying things like, we're not even sure you have a vagina. And I'm like, is that because I'm not sleeping with anybody here? Yeah. You know, just like for hours. What the fuck? 
showing you like porn on computers of like people with horses and what? Yeah, yeah. That's the climate. The climate is very much that. It's the climate. I mean, is, I don't know any. I I don't know any of my guy friends that would be okay with that. Yeah. So, I it feels like they're just trying to intimidate you out of right going through this right sticking it out and right. signing the list and coming back just getting rid of competition yeah and wow then, and then finally one so i did that i think for a year did anybody stick up for you the girls none of the guys there were even sweet boys who wouldn't talk to you um when you were waiting for your stage time they, they couldn't really be seen fraternizing with you because they're trying to pay the rent too yeah and they want their friends right and it was just, it was like you were isolated. Um, and maybe if I had been dating one of them, it would it would have been different. I, I, I don't know. But it was very isolating. And then finally one night, I'm sitting on the, on the steps of the comedy store, which is where everybody is. It's like where you pay for admission and where all the comics hang out. Uh-huh. For, I'm sitting with my friend, Erica Dorning, and I'm she was not yet a paid regular, I think. And I'm just kind of telling her, you know, what I've been up against. Is it okay to curse on here? Sure. And this comedian was overhearing me, overhearing our conversation, mm-hmm. which was none of his business anyway. Yeah. Hadn't been someone that had been particularly harassing me. I don't think he was a paid regular, so I don't think he was sitting there with us waiting to sign the list. I think he was just an employee. But he heard our conversation, and he screamed. It felt like. Maybe it wasn't screaming, but that's how I heard it. Oh, shut up, Palanker. No one here wants to fuck you. And I, I was just done. That was it? I just got up and I just said, I, I don't respond to assholes. And I walked down the stairs knowing I would never come back. Had you, I mean, had you had at that point uh, grown some aspiration? I knew that the comedy a, store was making me worse. I knew as that. As a comic or as a person? As a comic. As because a comic. Uh-huh. You, when you would finally, like, you'd, you'd sign that list in the morning, and then you'd you'd wait at night and then if anybody like Sebastian Maniscalco or Pauly Shore or anybody you know, showed up, they bumped you. You know, the people that were really good, they, if they showed up, they bumped you. So you'd get, and then even the, the, the employees bumped you. I don't know if it's because Mitzi wasn't there and they just did it. Right. There were times where I'd be at the Laugh Factory hanging out with my friends. I'd walk down to the comedy store just socially look at the list to see who was on and see my name. Which means that Mitzi had booked me and nobody had called me. So they're trying to make you appear as a no-show. So this is just what you're up against. Like if it's if I'm not getting better, if this isn't a place for me to, you know, you work out and, and get better. Yeah. And instead when I finally go up at 1:30 in front of four people and there's a comic in the back yelling take your top off, I'm not going to get better. I can't get, I'm not that strong. I'm not Sean Polofsky. Like, she's so strong. Like, my friends, my my female friends that have made it at the comedy store, those are strong women. Like, I'm not, I'm not that girl. Like, I'm, I'm just not, you know. I, I wish I were, but. And, I mean, was that it for you for, as far as stand-up goes? Is that, did you throw no, in the towel or did I you keep going? The best part was as I was walking down the stairs and, and, and as it clicked into my head, I'm not coming back here, Erica yelled, I'll fuck you, which was like the best line sure. I've ever heard. Sure. But I couldn't turn around and thank her because I had made my exit, and right. I, I knew I had to just walk away. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to use sort of like the street cred of Comedy Store Regular 
and get booked shows elsewhere. And I did that for a while. And then I started putting on shows in Santa Barbara and just, you know, creating my own shows. Why Santa Barbara? Um, I had two friends, Bobby Miyamoto and uh, Jordy Fox, who wanted, who thought that Santa Barbara is close enough and cool enough to get really good acts. And so we started, I kind of put my money into like buying the equipment that yeah. you need, like the lighting and the sound. And, and we started kind of looking for rooms in Santa Barbara that would, we figured it was far enough out of town that you could really fill it up with um, actual customers. Yeah. You know, whereas if when you do open mics in LA, it's basically other comics. So you created your own show yeah. basically yeah. with your own stuff and yeah. just brought it to a restaurant or a bar or whatever and said, hey, we've got this act. Can yes. we put it, can we set up in the corner? Yes. How'd that go? It was great. I did that for a couple of years. Did you then, end up living out there? Well, it was like I wound up, it's just by a series of coincidence, I wound up marrying a guy from Santa Barbara. Now, this is where we get to how you and I met to begin with. Right. I forgot how we met. Okay. So I'm, I'm working on another uh, podcast with a partner, Brandon Ogborn. Terrific. It's called Telephone Stories. Coming out soonish, I hope. Sorry, the gardener's here. I don't know if you guys can hear that. No, it's fine. I was thinking about that when we booked this on a Friday. We're in L.A. I mean... They're gardeners. That's how we do it out here. That's how we roll. Yeah, it's our music. Yeah, it is. Um, and you met your husband, uh, whose name is Ron Zellman, yes. who was the assistant uh, district attorney during the 2005 Michael Jackson trial. Right. And you were a witness for the prosecution, yes? Right. That's that, that, that kind of snuck up on me. I wasn't really expecting anything like that to happen. What do you mean? Uh, you are friends with the Arvizos, yeah? Yeah, but like as the thing was sort of like unfolding, my mom was saying, "Oh, it's going to be Gavin." Like you hear all these rumors about they raided his ranch, and like the Jordy, the Jordy Chandler thing had happened two, ten years prior, right. and and like I knew that Michael Jackson had a problem with children, but you know I wouldn't let any kid I knew sleep there. But uh, Gavin was a kid that came to the Laugh Factory for our program for. Teaching, teaching stand-up comedy to at-risk youth, and Gavin was a little kid, like maybe eight, and then maybe a year, a year later, he came down with cancer. Wait, wait, wait! I'm sorry. Let's back up. So you yeah. were involved with teaching kids stand-up? Yeah, through Jamie's program at the Laugh Factory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and they, and just coincidentally, the Arvizo family brought their son, and no, it wasn't coincidence. They, that's just how, that's how I met the Arvizos. Yeah. 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 It was way before. I knew I didn't know Ron or you know that the trial hadn't right. happened yet or anything but right. it was like um Gavin and his two siblings were in a program at the Laugh Factory. Mm -hmm. They were really sweet and uh that that winter the uh that that Christmas season my, my I'm friends with um uh, a man named Fritz Coleman. He's a weatherman here in Sure. He's he's like my best friend, and so he said, "Well, I, I've always wanted to meet Fritz, by the way." Oh, I can introduce. He you seems to him. like such a sweet. He is. He's like, the greatest guy. I mean, he's. I, I've always hoped that he was he like is. he he seems on TV. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and hilarious. <laughs> oh, you should interview him for your show. Sure. Yeah. So he said, "Well, I want to take. He has two boys. I want to take my boys to a family and show them, you know, how how to be grateful, you know, for what they have because not everybody has what you have and." And I said, oh, well, this one family, there's three kids, and I know they would really appreciate it. So we, I called them, and I said, Fritz and I were, you know, we would like to bring you some Christmas presents. So we, we went down there. They lived in one room, mattresses on the floor. It was, and they had, like, made drawings for Fritz and his kids. It was really sweet. 
mm-hmm. and we gave them um, a microwave and a PlayStation and. We do that every year with the Catholic Church, do even you? though I'm not Catholic. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we've got friends who are, who are Catholics, and we adopt a family every year through the through the um, cathedral downtown, and we deliver gifts too. I mean, that's... we haven't done it in a couple of years since we've had kids. It's been difficult to do yeah. that in the mornings, but we used to do that. Yeah. Well, well, maybe when your kids get a little older, it's something they can take part exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Even though we're all atheists, I think it's. Uh, oh, that, uh, the yeah. Catholic Church has a great system like right. to do that to facilitate it yeah so we i think s- fritz is an atheist too pretty much but he does a lot with salvation army because he just believes in their yeah. programs yeah and, and charity yeah i mean charity's become a four-letter word these days at least with the government that we've got uh i don't understand <laughs> i mean i think especially with the government it's we crazy have, we have to all become, charity we have to all become the community that we want to see yeah 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 and that way that's the, the other side of the coin right yeah yeah Okay, sorry. So, so maybe a few months after that, I got a call from Gavin's mom, and she was just screaming, Gavin has cancer, and I'm just like, what? Did she just say David? Because her, her husband's name was David. Like, I, 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 my mind and body would not accept this. It just it wasn't sinking in. I, I just said, I heard myself say, Gavin. I said it several times because I just, I, mm-hmm. like, what are you even saying? Mm-hmm. And so... I went down to Kaiser, and um, he was really sick, and they had to remove, like, a giant tumor from his abdomen and his one of his kidneys, and he was going to die. So he was about 11. And your relationship with, was with him as your student. And yes. This, right. Mm-hmm. And all the comedians, really, from the Laugh Factory went to see Gavin, like, a lot. Because over the, ne- over the next year... He was really sick and having a lot of chemotherapy, like adult levels, because they were, I think they were thinking, well, let's just kill him because he's going to die anyway. Right. I mean, it was just awful. Right. Just awful. And so we built him like a, a sick room in his grandmother's house so that, because he was going to have like a compromised immune system sure. and all that stuff. And so I gave the family some money to help with, you know, Gavin's illness. Mm-hmm. And then miraculously, Gavin did not die. He survived, he thrived, but while he was sick and bald and in a wheelchair, somebody sent him up to Neverland. And you don't I, know how that happened? I don't. I mean, Jamie likes to take credit for it and saying like, oh, I told Quincy and Quincy, you know, called Michael. But I, I think there's also, I think they also were in like a dance program with Felicia, Felicia Richard. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. The kids... The mom, Janet, she got her kids involved in a lot of things. So they, they knew different people that could have maybe arranged for a trip to Neverland. Did you ever feel that Gavin was a victim of his parents as well, or no? Um, I think he was a victim of a broken family. I don't think Michael Jackson has access to kids from your family or nope. my family. Nope. Like you might visit Neverland, and then you're gonna be like, okay, oh. goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, like no one's spending the night, even if there's like a 2% chance that this guy's a child molester, right? If, if there's a no percent chance there's a child molester, my, my son is not spending the night at some adult's house. Right. So. Yeah, I wouldn't let him spend the night here. Right. Unless maybe you had young kids and it was right. a sleepover. No, it, that doesn't make any sense. But yeah. That's and there's just, just me. There's so much about it that like, you know, Michael would always say like, oh, they asked to sleep in, in, in my room. Do you know one kid that walks up to the parent's bedroom? And says, can we sleep with you? Right. That never happens. No. Like, so the lies don't make any sense. And it's like, it's like pathological. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a lot like Trump. It's like nothing makes sense if you break it down. But 
everyone wants to believe the magic. I mean, that that's some good music. The best. So what you know? I mean, I remember you... getting Thriller for Christmas yeah. and sitting down on my sofa with my Walkman, and it blew my mind. I'd I never had, heard anything like it. I had everything. Of course, every Jackson all of us five, did. Every Michael, I had it all. All of us did. But at a certain point, you have to look at a situation and go, "This isn't right." And right now, we're we're in like sort of a cultural upheaval of people revealing things that happened to them that they thought no one would ever believe, and now this seems to be taking on some 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 health and some strength that you can say oh i was i was abused i was molested and mm-hmm. that and that maybe now you, is the right time for you to protect other people from that happening right right and, and people will listen to you and that never happened within michael jackson's lifetime it, it just didn't that's a good point yeah. yeah so so gavin finally gets well he his hair grows back and unbeknownst to me Michael Jackson decides to do this. P.S. I don't know Michael Jackson. Never met him. Never met him. Okay. Don't know him. Mm-hmm. My my cousin worked for him, but she she didn't tell she didn't say anything to me about it about any of this. Like I, based on the Jordy Chandler situation, I was like thirty million dollars. Like I was like, yeah. I I mean I don't know why you would build like a theme park in your backyard if you're not molesting kids. Like I I'm mean, like that's a like I know, you, it just seems like common sense to me. You might build a chick magnet. I know. In the hills, if you were into chicks, can I say chicks on the you radio? Can say chicks. Yeah. I think. No. I mean, we talked to to uh, Tom Mesereau for an hour and a half, and he had a very convincing argument to the contrary. Uh, Do you I think don't know. he's just convinced himself? Or I like... don't know. I don't know because I'm I I feel like I'm pretty good at sniffing out what people are trying to say, what they mean to say, what they can't say. Just like you, I think you're a very uh, observant person. You mm-hmm. understand people. You know how they communicate, body language. And I, I don't know. He's either a brilliant actor who deserves a Oscar. All right, trade secret. Yeah. All right. So my husband taught me that uh, because my I did. Oh, should I jump ahead and not, should I not? Say, anyway, my husband. Uh, spoiler alert! You're about to find out <laughs> <laughs> who I married. But my husband taught me that like defense attorneys will say like on minute one, I don't want to know whether or not you did it. They do, they don't want to know that. How do you, how do you? Because they they need to they need to mount the best possible right. case for right. you. Right. And that's how our court systems work. Right. It's like you deserve the best possible defense. And if you tell me that you did it, I'm not going to be capable of mounting that. Like psychologically, they need plausible deniability. Yeah. 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 So he he just probably said I I I. Let's blah, not talk about. Yeah. Not that Michael Jackson ever would have told him the truth. Well, you're supposed to, aren't you? No, I don't think you are. We <laughs> this we should. I don't want to hear this, Louise. <laughs> we we should ask a defense, a real criminal defense attorney. Like, do you? Because but anyway, what Ron says is that they kind of hate defending someone who is innocent. It's just too much pressure. Because if you're guilty and you did it and you and you lose, you're like, well, well you know, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> But like defending some only the bravest of defense, like the her, most heroic defense attorneys will go into areas where someone was wrongly accused. Yeah. Or, uh, and like and defend the in it. Like even it's weird because, I mean, Tom Ezra's involved in the innocence project. So you would think he would know the difference between actual innocence. And well, I think he's also defending Bill Cosby right now. So, well, <laughs> he, probably, <laughs> he probably said, Bill, <laughs> Bill I, I don't really want to know. Not wanna... <laughs> I'm not. 
looking in your medicine cabinet. I mean, I think I, he is. I'm pretty sure. I think he is too. I think he is. All right. So where were we? If in this I were, I'll tell you. If I were Bill Cosby, I'd hire Tom Mesereau as well. Yeah. He was. I mean, he's he's very charming. He's really charming. He's, I I hate him. I, I can imagine. He, I because he cross-examined me and I and he. What was that like? Very uncomfortable. In what way? He opened with, or we're jumping ahead in our story. Yeah, okay? it's okay. He opened with something extremely sexual that had nothing to do with what I knew about this family and was designed to make me uncomfortable and off balance. Man, it, it was just dirty pool. Did it work? Uh, I went. I, it had the opposite effect. I my brain, you dug in, my huh? brain said, "Game on." So it's it's a long story, but this family had been accused of. You know, way before they met Michael Jackson had been accused of so or, shoplifting or had or been some... caught shoplifting right. school uniforms from JC Penney's and the kids were told, you know, we don't have money for the uniform, so just stick this in your backpack and run. Okay. And their dad was kind of a grifter. I mean, that's the one thing that Tom Ezra That had. was the problem. It was the dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the time that they were going to Neverland, their dad was not in the picture. He never went to Neverland. He he had a restraining order. He wasn't allowed to be anywhere near them. And I had some really uncomfortable experiences with the dad when Gavin was sick like the dad was like you know he he just really creeped you out uh in a sense but like you know nothing that I couldn't handle but like he just kept asking me for more money and it was like it didn't occur to me that someone would use their deathly ill child as a way to get money from people so I just I wasn't figuring out what what was going were on were you single at the time yeah I was single yeah were you single until you met Ron yeah yeah. Oh, you were? Yeah. Yeah, I skipped my first marriage. Tell me about that. That's that's an Alan Wankus joke. Uh, <laughs> I can't take credit for the line. Um, yeah, but it's funny. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I was just doing my own thing. I, I didn't. It, you had boyfriends? I, Did you? I mean, yeah, I had boyfriends and I dated, but I, I wasn't, I was always in love with someone who didn't love me back that way. And, you know, and I wasn't going to just get married to be. To be married, to, to be, be conventional. Yeah. I, I don't think I had kind of that. I'm kind of a loner. Like, I never even wanted my own kids. Because, like, you know, they live with you, kids. And yeah. they're, they're no, there. No, I know. I'm they're, in it. They're there. I'm in it. Yep. Yeah. So, I don't know. I grew up with, like, three siblings. And a, and I grew up with a, with a dad who was in a wheelchair. And I think there's something about that that makes you, like, none of us, me and my three siblings, none of us were married until I got married. And they're still unmarried. I think there's something cool. psychologically that happens to you where, where you, on like on some subliminal level, you see marriage as being like a lot of responsibility. Oh. Yeah. Watching your mom taking care of your dad? Well, he could take care of himself to a large extent. Why and, was he in a wheelchair? Uh, polio before, oh, before sure. he got married. Well, that's making a comeback. Yeah. Immunize. So uh, where were we in the story? Oh, yeah. So about Gavin? Yeah. Oh, about Tom Israel. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, when when the cops, I guess, wrestled them to the ground, the, the mall cops wrestled them to the ground and said, you know, you guys set off the alarms, mm -hmm. you're stealing uniforms. I guess Janet, the mom, like her version of telling a story is exaggeration. So if something happened to her where somebody touched her nipple, she goes, she, she'll say that they touched my nipple a hundred times. So Tom Mesereau's opening cross-examination question to me was, are you aware that Janet Arvizo accused the J.C. Penney cop of, of tweaking her nipple 17 times? And I'm like, ah. Uh, 
Yes, That's I'm aware not of that. Something that came up over coffee. <laughs> uh-huh. But you know, I just was like, "That's kind of a really provocative thing to say to a sure. female witness when it has nothing to do with what I'm here to testify sure. to." Sure. So I just said, "No, I'm not aware of that." But my brain went, "This okay. is this is what's happening." Yeah. Yeah. Buckle. This in. is how this is going to go. Yeah. I and saw then, that in him. And yeah. then he'd do stuff like, he'd do stuff like, um. He'd say, do you remember saying, because I had been interviewed by the sheriffs uh-huh. when they first found out my involvement with the family, the, the sheriffs from the DA's office came over to where I was and interviewed me and and um, they were, they it was raining and they had raincoats and I wasn't aware that they were recording me. And they're not supposed to be recording no. me, but they were. So the defense got a got the typed out testimony of everything that the I- transcription, huh? Yeah, because I, I was thinking, because I had been- interviewed by a private investigator from the Jackson camp. And I was thinking when the sheriffs came, oh, now I'm talking to the good guys. Right. And I just kind of spilled my heart about how I thought that, you know, that this thing had unfolded and that their father, David Arvizo was a liar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just said a lot of stuff and, uh, and Tom used it. And Tom and Tom at some point said to me on the stand, and this is verbatim, he said, um, didn't you say that as as pertaining to her children, Janet Arvizo would sell them at the hospital, sell them at the laugh, laugh factory, sell them at the something else? And I'm like, I know I would never have said that. Would it refresh your memory to see the transcript? And then there's like this big parade of him walking around the courtroom. Yeah, the courtroom mm-hmm. up to me, handing me a giant notebook and telling me to read from here to here. And you've got like hundreds of people just staring at you. So you, I can't read while I, it's just way too uncomfortable a situation where you're going to be able to read. But yeah, I mean, you sort of see the words, but they're just swimming. And, right. And then. He asks you if you're done reading, and, and he takes the notebook back. And as he's walking back, he's not at his microphone, but I'm at my right microphone. It just clicked in, in my brain, like, what I actually would have said. And I leaned into the microphone, and I said, I would have said she was seldom at the hospital and seldom at the laugh factory. Because David Arvizo took over this situation of his son being sick. And he and kept capitalized it. it. Absolutely. It. Mm-hmm. He kept Janet away from her sick kid. Which I knew something was twisted at the time. Like long before Michael Jackson came into the picture, I was like, what's up with this family? Like something's not right. Right. It was the dad. He was controlling everything. And do you feel that your testimony helped Michael walk? Or was it just a no, little tiny piece of the yeah, puzzle? Just a tiny piece of it. But it mm-hmm. was just like just in just in terms of Mesero, you knew when you heard that or when someone typed that up sure. that I did not say sell them. That's not what the ear hears, because people don't sell their children, especially if I repeated it seldom, seldom, seldom. Oh, right. It's like the old Woody Allen thing, Jew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he always, what was that? What was that from Annie Hall or something? I don't know. I did that, Jew. And uh, he kept saying it, Jew, right, Jew. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, so I, that's like stuff like where I just feel like he was just trying to, knock me off balance the whole right. time. So I don't really think my testimony had much to do with anything. I, I was really just 
you know, they put my checks up on the screen to show that I had given this money to the dad and this money to the mom, like the amount that you could gift without ta- being right. taxed for it every right. year. Right. And then I just said, something's up. You know, he had told me, oh, she bought a lot of votive candles. And I'm like, how many votive candles can you buy with that amount? Of money? Like, it was like, hmm. like, what's going on here? But I, I never felt that any of that unmolested the kid. Right. And that was where I just stuck with Gavin. I, I Gavin and I are very close to this day. He has never lied to me before then or since then. Why would he be lying about this? He just isn't. Mm-hmm. This happened to him. He actually was sick, and he actually is not lying about any anything. He 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 was as sick as any person should ever be. Right. You, you know, I watched him in the hospital holding his head and throwing up into bags. Uh, you, you know, I. I am a personal witness to how sick this boy was. It was like Lazarus, yeah. And I mm. thought he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And every night when I left that hospital, I would say goodbye to him in my heart because I knew he was going to die and may not be there tomorrow. So if there's any kind of rumors online about that he wasn't actually sick, that's bull. You know, There are all sorts of rumors that Sandy Hook was a hoax, too. I mean, that's all sorts of terrible But when Gavin rumors. got well and Michael decided to do the Living with Michael Jackson special, he sent for Gavin because he wanted to show the world how he cures cancer. And it was when Gavin was well that Michael molested him. Not when he was sick. Were you living up in Santa Barbara at the time? Uh, uh, I asked you that before. and I, 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 I mean, what, what much... I'm getting at is this this coincidence of how you and Ron got together. Yeah. I think it, it, um, eventually I got like a little apartment there when we were putting on shows there like three nights a week. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have to drive back and forth. Right. But by then Ron and I were friends, but he was under what circumstances. How did you meet? Uh, he was the prosecutor. It was, it was through the trial. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And then he, he, he said, um, you know, if you have any questions, we could meet for coffee or something like that. And I was like, oh, I, I, I couldn't tell if that meant like, you know, that he he might like me. This I, was before the trial? No, af- way after the trial. Oh, way like, after, after the, the trial, he was like, we're not going to call you back as a character witness. Like they always said, you can't talk to the press until this is over because we may need to car- call you back on, onto the witness stand. And then when he called to say, we're not going to call you back, he said, you know, we could get coffee sometime. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. And so what wound up happening was me... Diane Diamond, who was a reporter on the on the case the whole time, sure. and Ron, we met for lunch that turned into dinner. Mm-hmm. We sat there at uh, forget the name of the restaurant, but like for like five hours, just going over everything because we all saw the same thing from different vantage points. Sure, and that's I think when I developed a crush on Ron, but he was dating somebody else. So it wasn't until like three years later that we began dating. Really? Yeah. But yeah, we sat there for like six hours, just like Diane, the reporter, me, the witness, and Ron, the prosecutor. And we just, because we had all experienced something that was, yeah, it was. Oh, like, it was a, I mean, culturally. Yeah, it was a, a huge, big upheaval. Huge yeah. thing. And you just want to talk about it. Yeah. Because there's so many, there, that case, like any case or anytime anybody watches Dateline, like there's so many moving pieces to whatever all is happening and so many different opinions and so many different points of view and like Diane had experienced like all 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 of what the the Michael Jackson fans were out there in force like right. day in and day out 
and I was only there for two days. Right. But I knew Gavin better than the two of them did. So. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're here in the hills. Yeah. You got a place in Santa Barbara. But this has been my home all, all along. Like I've had this home. You bought this on your own. Yeah, I had this home way before I I met Ron. Jeez Louise. Yeah. This is the home that 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 uh, I think I moved in here like maybe ninety seven something like that. Yeah. Wow. But I but once I start once I started dating Ron and married Ron, we bought a home in Santa Barbara. But I didn't want to. Uh, give up this home because I do spend like about three days a week in LA. This is where I do all my podcasts in this very studio. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is Ron uh, retired? No, and hardly like he still works. He has one more case at the DA's office and then he's started working for a private law firm. Yeah. It does a lot of trials. Yeah. I've, I've always wondered what prosecutors end up doing if you're not I working for think, the government. I don't think most of them stay for their whole career at the DA's office because private practice pays a lot better. So you always hear like um, former prosecutor. You hear that a lot, right? For, for civil cases, you mean? You just always hear like on the news. I mean, how like, does he? Who does he prosecute? Oh, you don't prosecute. So in civil cases, it's like there's a plaintiff and mm -hmm. a defendant. Yeah. And it's the 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 um, remedy isn't um, a sentence. The remedy is money. So that's the difference between civil mm -hmm. and uh, defense. Yeah. So he's working for a law firm that sort of specializes in actually going to trial like lots of law firms will try to settle sure because doing a trial is like public speaking with a defense mm -hmm. and public speaking is already hard enough right. imagine public speaking with someone trying to interrupt you and question everything you're saying right and it's so lawyers once they get to the point of having to go to trial it's it's very very intimidating and scary mm -hmm. and for ron for a prosecutor like no one's done more trials than a prosecutor they're just trial machines right. like they're hungry for it right like that's like being in the courtroom, like a verbal gladiator. Yeah. Like I got this. So his friend, Chris Cruz, who has a law firm in town, he was just like, hey, if you have time, we have cases. And now that he's kind of pouring through all these civil procedures and everything, he's just like overwhelmed because it's so different. Mm -hmm. But the basic skill set is there. So as soon as he gets it down, like just the terminologies and everything, sure. he'll be great. Sure. So. You spend most of your time in Santa Barbara, I guess half and half. Half and half. What's next? So I think I have, um, I'd still probably like to continue making documentaries. Yeah. Oh, God, we didn't talk about the cow sills yeah. and, the, and the Holocaust survivor documentary. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, so the cow sills you, you mentioned in passing already, you were, you were just a huge fan of theirs yeah, growing so, up. Yes, I was a fan, and then when the internet came around, I kind of Googled at some point, Googled. Right, whatever happened yeah. to the cow sales. I just Googled the cow sales. Yeah. I found this website, cowsales.com, all fan-made. Excuse me. Um, and I posted in their, like, guest book, you know, thanks for helping me grow up, blah, blah. Yeah. And this girl named Karen, I call her Karen with a C because mm -hmm. where I come from, Karen is spelled with a K. Sure. But, yeah, Karen with a C writes to me, and she says, yeah, if – if you, it says here you're from Los Angeles, you should go watch Bob. He performs at this pub. And I was just like, oh, God, I, I do not want to do that. <laughs> you know, like, I was so reluctant. Yeah, to, the movie like, opens in that, in that, with that scene, yeah, in the yeah, pub. Yeah, yep. And so I show up there at the pub. There's Karen, and she made me feel very comfortable. And there were a lot of fans there, and it turned out that the fan, like the council fans kind of like any fan group that you find online mm – -hmm of like people who found each other online, like they're very avid. Right. And they know what's going on. And so they knew, I didn't know that 
they knew this. That was the night, just very coincidentally, that John Cowsill was marrying Vicki Peterson from the Bengals. What? And the after party just spread into Bob's pub. And it was Cowsill's galore, all of them. Is it his pub? Does no. He, no, he just plays he just, there. It was Pickwick's. Wow. He doesn't play there anymore because he's he's doing other things. But yeah. uh, he used to perform like four hours a night. Um, just He's like a one-man... I mean that guy can sing and play. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. What's tell me the name of the of the movie that you that you directed and you did you produce it as well? Yes, it's called Family Band: The Cowsill Story. Good. And so I got. It's to, on Amazon right now, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime, yeah. and I got to watch, I got to sit there and watch like up close, all of those magical harmonies just mm-hmm. kind of like, launching off that tiny stage under a dartboard, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, what the hell. These people are as good as I thought they were at 11. Right. And so why aren't they the Bee Gees? Like what, you know, Right. what derailed, what happened? What derailed yeah. this? How do I get to sit this close to this magical to sound? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are, pub. they are so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And so. I read that they're in the middle of some kind of revival or, or some. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think it, I think it basically happened because of the film. Yeah. And because as I ultimately told Bob when trying to convince him that we should make this movie is the the story is going to lead the way for the music like the music right now with the music industry imploding and everything you're not going to get a record deal but if we can tell your story then all of the fans like me who are out there right but just not at that I didn't I hadn't heard of the Cow Sills yeah until I started doing research on you and watching the movie yeah but there were like they were really famous for like of course for five years you hear one or two of their songs you're like oh yeah I know that song but if you miss that five year window you don't know who they are right because that's how quickly you fell off the radar if you were an unsigned act in 1972 sure like you were done and they spent their entire adult lives try, kind of like trying to get back to 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 that where they belonged which is they're as talented as the beach boys or the bgs they they really are they sure. are the deal and so we told their story it, t- it took eight years and in the middle of it there were some tragedies and i you know that you have to figure out like now what like they, right they now just, what's the story yeah. they wanted to stop they just stopped susan just said like we can't do this we can't do this we need to stop so two years later bob called me and said do you want to meet me at uh some coffee shop near his house, and I'm like, I, I, I knew what he, I knew what he was gonna say. And you had, you had all this footage. Of, yeah, we had yeah. all this footage. Sure. And he's like, well, Paul and Susan, you know, it's never Bob, you know, it's like, well, Paul and Susan really want to know if, if we can finish this, and it's like, it's making a documentary. It's like, it's hard. Yeah, and you don't know where it's gonna go. Yeah. But because we waited those two years, the story was completely different because of the tragedies. Sure. And uh. So I would show the footage I had already done to people and they would say, with the interviews, you need to just scrap them. They're not oh, well God. lit. They're oh. not well mic'd. They're not like, cause I, I was, I was learning how to make a documentary right. and I would, I would partner with people who were also learning how to make a yeah, documentary. But yeah. they had sold themselves right. other, otherwise to me. And so I had to extricate myself from certain situations and it was, it was really, really on every level challenging sure but it's a steep learning curve yeah i found the same with this podcast it's been a steep 
learning curve. Yeah, it, it just really is. And anything that you want to do, like, but, rather d- but than, don't know how to do. Yeah. But rather than feeling intimidated by a steep learning curve, just say, well, you're still going to just do it one day at a That's time. That's what I do. Which you can handle. Yeah. Which we can all handle. And I put it up mistakes and all. Yeah. That's, I just forget about it. I yeah. just keep doing it. And so, you know, having completed it and having, having, uh, shined a spotlight on my childhood idols right and and if that helped them that's all i ever and it's ancillary that the help that they get is ancillary the whole point is really doing something that you love yeah and and putting that out and knowing that there are enough people that'll find interest in it as well yeah and it's really a story about like surviving within a family and like your childhood is your childhood you don't have a lot of control over that and the Cowsills, the only difference between their childhood and a lot of other people's childhood is that they were Instead of trying to look perfect in a Christmas card, which most dysfunctional families tried to do, yeah, they were trying to look perfect every day on television, like perfect, 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 and you know, quite the opposite was actually happening. It's really funny because this morning we tried on a bunch of Christmas sweaters on my son <laughs> for that very reason. <laughs> He's gonna have to make a movie about you. <laughs> we're not quite quite as dysfunctional yet. I'm working on it. Um, and, yeah, they're, and, so now they're on. They're they're they'll be doing their fourth summer with the Happy Together tour uh, right. with the the, the uh, turtles? Mark and Howard from the Turtles do right. every summer, and it's just it's the best. If you go to one of those shows, you will not stop smiling from the moment it starts until the moment it ends. I just it's interviewed a guy named so Ron Dante fun. that goes on a tour. Yes, I don't know if he's he, on that tour. He was on it this year. He was. Yeah. That yeah, he had just returned from that tour when I yeah. uh, interviewed him like a month and a half ago. He's the best. So good. He's the best, and the Kelsos were like, "This is the dream guy to open the show." Like he's he they they love touring. What with a him. strange coincidence yeah. this is. Yeah, and I have another. I have a really funny Ron Dante story, which is that I go to um to see a screening of the Boys and Heart documentary. Uh-huh. I don't know if you heard about it, but it it's Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, there's a documentary about uh-huh. them. And I went down to the screening, and they were, like, all sold out. So I'm just standing there thinking. And it was, like, a Thursday night. My husband was in uh, Santa Barbara, and I was just, like, going to go see it. Because, yeah. you know, I figured it'd be, like, a lot like the Cow Sills documentary. And I, I love stuff like that. Like, And I love songwriters, yeah. you know, because I write songs. And so I go down there, and it's, like, completely sold out. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll just stand here and see if there's any tickets after everybody goes in. Sure. And somebody, and I'm standing in a group of people that are trying to get in, and somebody walks by, and he goes, I have an extra ticket. And I'm the kind of girl who just, like, goes for it. Right. Like, I'm really shy, but in that moment where you're supposed to go for it, I go for it. Right. So I'm like, I'll I'll take it. Yeah. And I go in with him, and we're sitting there, and we're introducing ourselves, and he says his name is Ron, and uh, and we're talking, and then I just go, are you Ron Dante? And he was like, yes. And he and he told me about how, you know, he told me all these stories about how he was almost in the monkeys. And I'm what a great. Yeah, life he's led. And then so, and then so after the Happy Together tour a couple months ago, I go up to him and I go, "So remember the?" And and he goes, "You're that girl." And I'm like, "Yes, I'm the girl." That is so. Yeah, he he remembered giving the ticket to somebody, but he he didn't know exactly. I really, I mean, all I knew about him was from the Archies. And then I get to his place, and he's got all these posters from Broadway shows he's produced and a Tony, and I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, he's the real deal. It, the real deal. Yeah, and he worked with Barry Manilow and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, for 17 years. Yeah. And he's out on tour still. Oh, man, he's a great performer. I mean, he's got to be in his 70s. He's super cute. I mean, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And he knows Rupert Holmes, too. No way. Yeah, he's like a best friends with Rupert Holmes. Oh, that's so cool. I've always wanted to meet. Talk about that 
I, uh, on the podcast, I said, oh, the margarita song. And as soon as that came out of my mind, I was like, you motherfucker, that's the pina colada song. It's not even called the pina colada song. It's called Escape. If you're like, oh, <laughs> you just have to start singing it. You can't just talk about it. That's what we did. Like it's mandatory. We did that in, the, in, in my podcast with Ron. It was so funny. Um, so what is next for you? Let, I'm going to go back to that. Where, what do you see happening in the future with this podcast? Is this, is this, I mean, I'm, I'm in the studio. First of all, I can't believe, I mean, you go to my studio and it's a desk with two microphones like mounted like this is. Pretty you've sweet. got cameras everywhere. You've got computer screens. I mean, I watch your show on Facebook. You've got live switching. Well, will you come back when we do our show? Yeah. So we're, we're, we do this live every Tuesday at four o'clock. So you're welcome to come back. We have this week. We have um, my friend James Arnold T Taylor. He's a voiceover guy. He uh -huh. does a lot of animation and a lot of like. I'm so sorry, but I I can't I can't remember the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Oh my god, so, I yeah. made the same mistake so on a podcast once. So he does either Star once. Trek or Star Wars. Oh my over. god, That's, sorry, James. I'm so glad. <laughs> I did that live. I'm not live, but on my show. And I told you, I don't edit. I try not to edit things out. Yeah. yeah. So I've got this perfectionism problem that mm -hmm. has prevented me from. Oh, so your shrink says, you know what? Just put it out. That's it. I'm supposed to shower in front of men at the YMCA and I'm supposed to just put this thing out on the podcast. I'm not sure how they're related, but one as is for one thing and one is for another. I'm wearing pants. You don't pull a Louis C.K. and shower to, Yeah, just to make it clear, show. I'm wearing pants right now. Yeah, he is. Um, oh. Yeah, but yeah. I, so we we do it every Tuesday at four o'clock, and we do Facebook Live, and then I put it on YouTube, and then the audio podcast I put up on all the podcasts. Do you have somebody that does all of that for you? Yes, but I have to pay them. You do. Like, there's no one. I mean, everyone pretty much is is a volunteer yeah. from the performance end of things. Yeah, which is that's still scary because you're never really sure who's going to actually show up. Sure, but. In order to have all of that equipment working and mm -hmm. functioning properly, you mm -hmm. you have to pay engineers. Now, if you're just doing an audio podcast, yes, you can do it the way you're doing it with remote equipment. Right. You can do everything yourself. Right. But if you're, if I want it. I want it to be bigger. I want this podcast to be more interesting. And I need. I mean, I offered um, to split revenue with with the producer. You know, I'm like, here, take fifty percent of the show. Let's grow it together. Well, I'm willing to do that. If you wanted to do it here and have like a multi-camera shoot, because it, that's really what this studio offers. That's, right. I mean, we have Pro Tools there, but the equivalent of Pro Tools exists in your deck. Yeah, right. But right. if you want to have like a multi-camera Jeez. Yeah, the switching shoot, and stuff, it's awesome. Then that happens at that station over there. Right. And we use something called Wirecast and then another program. It's a whole thing. And you push it to Facebook Live and you create a file. And then I marry that file with the, the Pro Tools on using Final Cut, and then I put that on YouTube because yeah. that's better. Nope. That's better audio. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to do all that. But if you wanted to do it here yeah. and pay the guys, right. then you could. Right. Or we could go into some sort of partnership. I think this is what we should do. Yeah. Let's form another media company and sell it to Clear Channel. <laughs> all right. All right. Shake on it. All right. I love it. Thanks for being a guest on my show. You've been fabulous. I feel like I started a lot of thoughts and didn't finish them, so please write in and I'll I'll finish any thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. The fascinating Louise Palenker. I thought it was a timely interview, especially the bit about her, her days uh, working stand-up. You know, I don't know why I'm shocked to hear those things. I've never treated uh, a woman that way. And I can't believe that a lot that people do that. I don't know. Call me naive, I guess. But 
if you're a guy listening to this, don't do that. It's just awful. And it makes you look like a really bad person when you do stuff like that. So, and I have a daughter, you know, especially if you have a daughter, teach her how to, how to speak up when assholes like that do, do stuff like that. It's crazy. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Louise, for being on the show. Um, remember to try and always be kind to one another. And until next time. You probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get onto my show.